Hey y'all, it's Jordan here with episode number two of Best Virginia. I want to thank you guys for coming back and thank you all of my listeners. Um, it's it's really been a blessing. I've noticed, I've been tracking my listeners and it's crazy the amount of feedback I've been getting and the amount of, the wide area that I've reached. Uh, I think we're up to almost 20 different states um, and a couple different countries at this point. Um, at least that's what the stats are saying. That means the world to me, and I really appreciate it. And hopefully that number keeps growing. I, I, I want to give you guys interesting content, and I want to interact with you guys. So please feel free to reach out to me. Let me know what you guys think. Let me know what you want to hear. Uh, I really appreciate it. It means the world. I've also been getting tons of positive feedback for my logo. Uh, now, that logo was created by Jemison um, over in Five Star Tattoo in, down in Louisville, Kentucky. He, uh, he's done a couple tattoos for me, does great American traditional work, uh, wouldn't have picked anyone else to do that logo. Uh, so y'all should check his uh, Instagram out, Jemison underscore tattooer. So uh, he, like I said, he does amazing work, uh, excellent American traditional style. Again, I'd like to give a shout out to my fiance who was on here last week. Uh, Chelsea, I appreciate having you on here. Uh, we'll we'll have, definitely have her back on here again, as, as long as well as some other people. So feel like I said, feel free if you have any. Um, any knowledge about the topics we're looking at or interest, let me know. Um, so today we're going to start talking about an overall bigger topic of the West Virginia Coal Wars, a.k.a. the Mine Wars. Um, and to do that, we're going to break that up into three separate episodes, where today we're going to start with the Mate One Massacre, which actually just celebrated its 100th anniversary last Tuesday on May 19th. While the actual event of the Mate One Massacre took place in 1920, we're going to rewind a little bit back to 1912 and 1913. It was during those years, uh, starting in April 18th, 1912, that there was a series of strikes over in the Cabin Creek and Paint Creek areas. Now let me tell you about the work conditions. Uh, first off, there was barely any safety concerns at all, uh, or barely any safety precautions, I should say. Um, these guys were getting paid, the union miners over in Paint Creek, they were getting paid two and a half cents less per ton per person than other miners in the area uh, for the same weight. And those in Cabin Creek were not unionized, uh, which means that they, you know, they, they got treated however. And, you know, starting in April, the miners started to get tired of not being heard and not being respected. So they organized a strike, which eventually attracted the attention of the National United, United Mine Workers Association, which is the National Union. Um, and they ended up supporting them wholly, back them financially, but prior to that, things got a little hairy. So, uh, starting in that April, like I said, the, the Paint Creek miners, they got tired of it, so they organized a strike, um, which was peaceful the first month, but after that first month, things started getting violent. And overall, there were 50 total deaths, uh, more indirectly due to starvation and, and malnutrition um, because they, these miners couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't, they couldn't feed their families. They couldn't do the things that they needed to do to stay alive and stay safe, as well as their family. When the miners started to strike, they had a series of demands, and in these demands, you know, they, uh, they were asking for increased pay, um, or they, they were basically just asking for equal pay to the other miners in the area. And they, when it was during the time they were negotiating a new contract with their operators. So they demanded equal pay, um, which would have cost the, the mine operators about 15 cents per miner per day. 
uh, which, you know, when we think about that now, it's probably, it's not really that much, but you got to think a hundred years ago, there's an argument to be made there, I guess, but there, you can't put, you can't put a price on safety and the amount of work that these men were putting in. In addition to that, they were asking that the operators, when I say operators, I mean the owners and operators of the mines. Um, so they, they were just asking that they accept and recognize the union, um, that the miners' right to free speech and peaceable assembly be restored, uh, which they didn't, they didn't really feel like that they had at this point. They were asking that the operators accept and recognize the union in a way that lets them you know, lets them get all the benefits of the union. And they were asking that compulsory trading at company stores be ended because up to this point, and, and a little bit after this point, they were required to live in houses owned by the mines. They were required to buy stuff from the company stores, to, only, to shop exclusively at com- company stores. And, you know, like all the money went straight back to the company. The, the miners and their families didn't really have much of a choice of where they spent their money um, for everyday items, or most things at that. So they were also asking that cribbing be discontinued and that 2,000 pounds of mine coal constitute a ton. Uh, things were a little sketchy leading up to this point because, you know, a lot of times the miners were getting shorted because they, they were, you know, they were mining it individually, so they were, they were getting paid individually. And... Uh, they were asking that scales be installed at the mines to weigh the tonnage of, of each miner at the end of each day or end of each work week, and that the miners be allowed to employ their own check weighmen to check against the weights found by the company check weighmen as provided by law. And, and they also asked that the two check weighmen determine all docking penalties. So they're basically just wanting to know that they were getting paid for the work that they were putting in. So like I said earlier, the first month of this strike was nonviolent. Um, but after that, the mine operators, they hired this Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency uh, to come in and break the strike. So they, uh, they sent 300-plus mine guards, um, which I'll get into all that in a minute. But it was, they, these mine guards were led by Albert and Lee Feltz and Tony Gajot. Now, this Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, you know, that for, for what it's called, that's not what it was. Uh, they were, these were basically some hired thugs that would just come in and just basically they would rough up anybody who gave them trouble and who gave their the people who hired them trouble just to keep peace. Uh, and by keep peace, I mean suppress anyone who had any other ideas. Now you'll see as we go along here that the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency winds up playing a pretty significant part in the mine wars. Um, now this agency was formed in the early 1890s by William Gibbon B. Baldwin and as the Baldwin Detective Agency and later the Feltz brothers got involved. According to Wikipedia, the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency spent much of the late 1890s and the early 1900s um, basically keeping railroad crime under control but as that started to diminish uh, labor unions or, or when labor unions would strike that's when the companies would hire them to help break those strikes, to help keep... Uh, you'll see if you look these guys up that a lot of what they do ends up being called repression. And that's exactly what it was. You know, they, they would come in and just rule with an iron fist and help these companies get their, you know, get their workers under control, uh, which, you know, works fine for the companies, but that's not what these workers need. You know, they're, they're risking their lives each and every day. They're trying to support their families. And 
it's all just a money game to these companies. So that's why these men would come in, uh, you know, like I said, they came in to break this strike, 300 strong, um, and set up as quote-unquote guards. In 1969, uh, jumping ahead, but just a little a side note, um, the Attorney General of West Virginia, Howard B. Lee at the time, uh, wrote a book, and in that book, he called, the, he called Baldwin and Felt uh, the two most feared and hated men in the mountains, which to me sounds pretty accurate, uh, just based on their tactics. You know, they would come in, um, you know, like I said, according to that Wikipedia article, uh, it, it called them thuggish, and they were known for their propensity to violence, uh, which eventually led to, to what, were, what is building up to be this violent strike. In June of that year, Mary Harris Jones, more commonly known as Mother Jones, uh, she became involved. She was a union organizer, and she was really looking out for the best interests of the miners all across the country at the time. Labor historian Melvin Dubofsky had this to say about Mother Jones. Indeed, her renown as a radical rests on a shaky historical foundation. A woman who publicly accused UMW officials of selling out their followers to the capitalist class, she negotiated amicably with John D. Rockefeller Jr. in the aftermath of the 1914 Ludlow Massacre. Famous for enlisting workers' wives in the labor struggle, she opposed women's suffrage and insisted that a woman's place was in the home. She was simply and essentially an individualist, one who chose to devote the last 30 years of a long life to the cause of the American working class. Her influence on the American labor movement was, however, largely symbolic. The image of a grandmotherly, staidly dressed, slightly built woman, unfazed by hostile employers, their hired gunmen, or anti-labor public officials, intensified the militancy workers who saw her or heard of her. Now, once Mother Jones got involved in June of 1913, uh, sorry, 1912, mine owners began to evict miners from company homes and hired, they hired replacement workers. Uh, when the miners did not cooperate, guards became violent with the use of snipers, beatings, and sabotage to maintain order. Throughout the month of July, Mother Jones she began rallying strikers and encouraged other miners, uh, mainly from the town of Eskdale, West Virginia, to join the strike. She then organized a secret march of 3,000 armed miners to the state capitol building in Charleston, where, she, where they read a declaration of war to Governor William E. Glasscock. Then on July 26, the miners attacked Mucklow, West Virginia, which is currently the town of Gallagher. The battle led to the deaths of at least 12 miners and four guards. Then on September 1st, another 5,000 miners from the north side of the Canal River joined the effort. Uh, it was after this massive increase in force that Governor Glasscock declared martial law in the region effective September 2nd. After that, 1,200 state troops went around uh, and they confiscated guns and ammo from both sides, which led to a slight reduction in tension. However, strikers were forbidden, were forbidden to congregate and they weren't, allowed, uh, they weren't allowed to get together in groups, they weren't allowed to organize anything, and they weren't getting treated fairly in their trials any time they were convicted or, uh, sorry, charged with any crimes. Also after that, strikers' families began to suffer from hunger, from the cold, and poor living conditions at their tent colony at Holly Grove. On October 15th, martial law was lifted. However, it was reimposed on November 15th and wasn't lifted again until January 10th, 1913. On February 7th, 1913, the strikers attacked Mucklow again, leaving at least one dead. That same evening, Kanawha County Sheriff Bonner Hill and a group of detectives attacked the miners' settlement at Holly Grove in retaliation. They attacked with an armored train that they called the Bull Moose Special, which was armed with machine guns and high-powered rifles. Uh, 
They shot up the house of a striker named Sesco Estep, which killed him. Uh, the strikers, they weren't done yet. They went back and attacked Mucklow again, killing at least two more people, which resulted in martial law being reimposed for a third time on February 10, 1913. On February 13, 1913, Mother Jones was arrested and charged in military court for inciting a riot and conspiracy to commit murder. She refused to recognize military jurisdiction and failed to enter a plea. That resulted in a 20-year sentence at the state penitentiary where she developed pneumonia. On March 4th, Dr. Henry D. Hatfield was sworn in as the new governor of West Virginia. As his first act as governor, he visited the region where he released 30 miners that were being held under martial law and had Mother Jones transferred to Charleston where she could receive medical treatment. In April, he began working on a settlement to bring the strike to an end. The miners had the choice to accept the Hatfield's terms, sorry, accept Hatfield's terms or to be deported. On May 1st, the Paint Creek miners accepted the Hatfield contract. Cabin Creek miners continued to resist with some violence until the end of July. The strikes led to about 50 deaths total. Um, you'll, you'll also see the UMWA, Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, and Mother Jones, they all, they all later become involved in the Colorado Coalfield War of 1913 and 1914. That now brings us to the Battle of Mate 1, a.k.a. the Mate 1 Massacre. Mate 1 was founded in 1895. The mayor at the time was Cabell Testerman. The chief of police at the time of the Mate 1 Massacre was Sid Hatfield. He was a known supporter of the UMWA's efforts to unionize miners in southern West Virginia. On the morning of May 19, 1920, according to WestVirginiaCulture.org, Albert Feltz, along with 12 other agents of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, were dispatched to evict families living in the Stone Mountain coal camp just outside of Mate 1. The agents completed several evictions before having dinner at the Urias Hotel. After dinner, the agents began making their way to the train depot to catch the 5 o'clock train back to Bluefield. That's when Sid Hatfield stopped the agents, claiming that he had warrants for their arrests from the Mingo County Sheriff's Department. However, this is when the detectives produced their own warrant for the arrest of Hatfield and his deputy. That warrant was later determined to be fraudulent uh, under the order of Mayor Testerman. It was after this that the agents began to notice that they were surrounded by armed coal miners, um, the coal miners were watching them from windows, doorways, and rooftops all along the businesses that were located on Mate Street. Now, there are conflicting stories about who actually fired the first shot. There are some rumors that were known to be spread by Tom Feltz, the remaining Feltz brother, that Sid Hatfield was having an affair with Mayor Testerman's wife, um, now, which led him to uh, supposedly shoot Mayor Testerman at the beginning of all this. Now, that was, that was never confirmed, However, Sid Hatfield did marry Mayor Testerman's wife only 11 days after his death. The ensuing gunfight would leave seven detectives, including the Felt brothers, and three townspeople, including Mayor Testerman, dead. According to Smithsonian Magazine, the whole fight was over in about 15 minutes. During the fight, two miners were killed. One of the miners, Bob Mullins, was just fired for joining the Union, and the other one, Todd Tinsley, he was just an unarmed bystander. Four other bystanders were wounded. The big victory here was the casualties inflicted on the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, especially that of the Feltz brothers. 
At the time of the battle, John L. Lewis was just elected president of the UMWA. He set out to organize miners all across southern Appalachia. In the spring of 1920, about 3,000 miners ended up signing the Union's roster, which, which they knew could cost them their jobs and even their homes. After the Battle of Mate 1, the miners began to improve efforts to unionize due to the victory over the Baldwin Fells Detective Agency. On July 1, 1920, the Union went on to strike again, leading to widespread violence in which railroad cars were blown up and strikers were beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Um, the remaining Felt's brother, Tom, he began to dispatch spies to collect evidence against, the Hatfield, against Sid Hatfield and his men. Uh, when the charges against Sid Hatfield and 22 others for the murder of Albert Feltz were dismissed, agents with the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency assassinated Sid Hatfield and his deputy, Ed Chambers, on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse. Now, for those whose charges were not dismissed, they were acquitted for all crimes. That's when less than a month later, miners from the state gathered in Charleston with plans to march on Logan County, which would eventually lead to the Battle of Blair Mountain. Now, I'm going to preface that episode. Uh, now, we're going to, in between this episode and the Battle of Blair Mountain, we're going to talk about the Battle of the Tug. Um, but the Battle of Blair Mountain is pretty important to me um, because I was actually, when I was born, my family lived at the foot of Blair Mountain on the Logan County side. Well, on the Blair side, I should say. Um, and fun fact, my great-great-grandmother, who was still alive uh, until I was a couple years old, she, as a child, would carry supplies to the miners uh, involved in that. Um, so that one really hits home to me, so I'm really excited about that one. Um, but I hope you guys learned a lot today. I mean, this this topic is huge. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it, it bleeds over into Colorado and all across the United States. Um, just this whole idea of miners really trying to stand up for their well-being and, you know, for their rights. I mean, prior to this, they were they were paid in coal company script, which they were they had to use. At the company stores, they had to rent homes from the coal companies. I mean, so they basically didn't get paid. They got a place to live, and they got bottom-of-the-barrel stuff that they paid the company for. Um, so the money just cycled back and forth between the company and the miners, which, you know, which really wasn't fair. And that, that, was, that was the whole gist of this thing. The miners just wanted to be treated fairly, and they were really suppressed by the companies. You know, because once you signed up, that was it. Like you, you, in the area, that was the main source of livelihood. Uh, coal mines, and it still is. I mean, I'm the son of a coal miner. I know a lot of my friends are coal miners to this day. Uh, a lot of my family members were always coal miners. And, you know, it just really hits dearly to see how hard those guys work and how poorly they were treated from the beginning. Um, so I really appreciate you guys listening to me today. I uh, this is a huge topic, and uh, so I like to kind of to keep it. I always like to get short and to the point. Um, so I like to keep it short enough to talk about one piece of this without just yammering on and on and on. 
So, like I said, my plan is to break this whole topic of the West Virginia Coal Wars or the Mine Wars into three different episodes. Today we talked about the events leading up to the Mate 1 Massacre and the Mate 1 Massacre itself. Later on you'll see uh, the effect that that had on really rallying these miners to what would be, uh, like I said, they organized this huge march to Logan County, but in the meantime there's some other stuff going on around the state. So, uh, like I said, I appreciate you guys tuning in uh, and listening to me. I I appreciate it. And always feel free to reach out to me. Um, Let me know what you guys think. Let me know what I can improve on. Let me know what you guys have some experience with. I mean, I'd love to have some some callers on here, some uh, some guests, to talk about things that they know about. Um, Now, I know I said I was breaking the Cold Wars into three episodes. Uh, but I think what I've decided to do is do a couple episodes in between that. So you guys, uh, if it's something you're interested in, great. If it's something that, that's eh, all right, then you'll have some other stuff in there to, uh, to kind of keep you coming back. So I think next week I would like to talk about Mamie Thurman. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, stay tuned. It's, uh, it's another interesting situation. And for those of you who know what Mamie Thurman, who, who Mamie Thurman was, and the stories surrounding her death and subsequent hauntings, or if you have any experience with that, or if you've ever encountered her ghost, please give me a call uh, or send me a message on Facebook, on Instagram, or my email address is bestvirginiapodcast at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get back to you. And get you involved with the show. I mean, I, I, especially when there's stuff like that, I'd love to to get some to get some sightings or to get some experiences that other people have had. If you like what you're hearing so far, and, and if you haven't already, please follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Um, on Facebook, it's Best Virginia Podcast. On Instagram, it's Best Virginia. Um, you know, I try to post things throughout the week of just different interesting things I see throughout the state. Um, and in my hometown of Huntington, Barbersville, and also little little tidbits of uh, little tidbits of West Virginia history and folklore here and there. So, uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, please give me a follow, um, shoot me a message, uh, you know, comment on some of my pictures. I, you know, like I said, I, I love interacting with you guys. I love hearing from you guys. If you have any suggestions of things that you'd like to hear about, uh, feel free to message me or email me. If you, uh, you know, if you think there's anything I can do better or anything you'd like to hear in the future, I'm playing around with a little bit of ideas. Uh, you know, this whole thing's still kind of new, um, but I'm, you know, I'm having loads of fun with it. So uh, some of my ideas so far, I've thought about having callers on here. I've, I've thought about doing like a couple like mini episodes here and there about some like local businesses or like mom and pop joints. Um, cause you know, we have tons of those. I uh, just, even in, even in this area, uh, like I said, right now I'm in Barbersville, West Virginia. So even in this area, there's tons of stuff. There, there's tons of small businesses that, that could really use the support, uh, and not to mention are great. So with that being said, I'm always available and I always love hearing from you guys. So until next time, this is Jordan with Best Virginia.